While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. how my favorite amc show just ended which show is that uh talking bad is that your favorite show i really like it's my favorite one i've i've never watched a single episode of breaking bad but i tune in every week for talking bad well when just to hear like the post-show breakdown i'm a big jimmy kimmel fan celebrities and (laughs) so whenever he comes on i want to see what he thinks about tv yeah especially if he had like nothing nothing to do with it like it's even better that way not not even anything at all to do with making the show like the less a talking bad guest has to do with the actual breaking bad show the more i want to know how they feel about it because well, i feel like, like they me. can they can really offer insight into into the process not only everything. insight but they're they're like me up there they're asking the questions that i would ask they know all the things that I know, except more because they actually watch the show. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because I, again, we go in with no foreknowledge of what just happened in the last episode. Oh, I don't know. I haven't watched Brian Cranston on TV since Malcolm in the Middle. And even then, if there was a talking even, in the middle, yeah. I would have watched Talking in the Middle instead. <laughs> talking Bad is over, and it's left a void in my life that just can't be filled in by Low Talking Sun. Low Talking Sun. Talking Men and other talking shows. <laughs> talking Men would be pretty good. I would watch Talking Welcome Men. Welcome to Talking Books, otherwise known as Overdue. We are a <laughs> podcast in which we talk about books. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And each week, one of us has read a book that we meant to have read sometime earlier in our life. And well, most weeks. <laughs> or we should have read. How about that? Or we should have recorded. Or all sorts of should haves. Um, <laughs> we have lots of regrets. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our regret podcast. Yeah, we we didn't record an episode last week because we we're, I don't know, we we're ne'er do well layabouts. I'm not sure what the exact reason. We're latchkey was, kids. Is that the what idiom are you looking for? No, no. I mean, layabouts is we're just lazy. We're not latchkey kids. Is like very very specific, <laughs> and it refers to kids who come home from school before their parents are home from work. Like, was that you? Did you do that? Did Were I you do a latchkey kid? We had a babysitter for a while. Um, you know, I don't remember. I don't think so. Because my mom had a job like sporadically through childhood. But usually she was home, I guess. Yeah, my mom didn't have a job until I was in middle school. And then I guess mm-hmm. I was a latchkey kid, but... By, by the time you're like a latchkey teen, like it's... Yeah, it's different. <laughs> you're pretty much fine. It's different from when I see like... When I'm walking around the city and I just see like eight year olds running around, I'm like what are you doing? Like, where are you supposed to be? <laughs> Does your mom know where you are? I don't know. I heard I heard an eight year old or maybe a ten year old the other day say, "Don't you wish your homie was a freak like me?" To someone on the street. What does that even mean? What are the kids today even getting up to? I don't know. But what have you been getting up to, Andrew? What have you been reading? 
I've been getting up to the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Not the, the portrait second... of Dorian Gray? It's No, it's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. I know. I'm just wondering why I misremembered that. <laughs> you know, I thought it was Portrait 2, but it's not. That's that story. All right. So it's the second Oscar Wilde <laughs> that you've read and that we've read on the podcast? Yeah. And it's, I, I don't know. Like, I, I read The Importance of Being Earnest the last time I did a book, and then I got lazy, and I just decided i would i would read this you because i do reader it was another man you were that does not make any sense <laughs> it's a book that i like knew the thrust of but i never actually read it before well what's the thrust of it the thrust of it is there's this guy dorian gray oh wait a second yeah i never would have guessed and there's a picture of him is it a good picture it is a good picture and okay, so let, let, let me let me back it up. Let's let's do <laughs> beep, let's beep, do plot beep. synopsis. Let's go back. I'm gonna put it in reverse. There's this guy named Dorian Gray, okay. like I said, mm-hmm. and he <clears throat> is really good looking and young. And people are talking about how young and good looking he is all the time. Where are we? Who are these people talking about him? We're in England. Okay, in Lon- like Londonish. Londonish. <laughs> I don't know. Is that's that the, my that's favorite the only thing district in England, right? of England is Londonish. Londonish. <laughs> um, he's friends with this this artist named Basil Hallward. Basil. 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 It's all. It's it's all Austin Powers for me. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> uh, he's this artist who notices how good looking Dorian is and is really impressed with how good looking. He now is. you so said he, the word impressed in a way that might imply that he's more than impressed do you think that to be the case well okay knowing what we do about oscar wilde's um <laughs> his homosexualness okay for which for which in the last in the importance of being earnest podcast we talked about how after that came out he was like running out of town on a rail basically like he was imprisoned right yes for two years and hard labor really he couldn't show his face in polite society again after that, yeah, I don't much. think he did. Um, knowing what we do about Oscar Wilde now, there are definite like undertones because like mo- there are women in this story, but they play kind of a minor role, and most of the most of the action takes place between Dorian Gray, um, Basil, Basil Hallward. I'm going to go with Basil. I like that better. Sorry, I'm going to say Basil, but you keep saying Basil. Okay. We'll cover we'll both our bases. The difference. Yeah. We'll cover our bases. We'll cover our bases. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Lord Henry Watton, who is like a... <laughs> Wikipedia describes him as an imperious and decadent dandy. <laughs> All right. That sounds like a character so from fine. a late 19th century novel. Anyway, the way that Basil and Henry are always going on about how good-looking Dorian is definitely has like undertones of homosexuality especially like henry kind of has like a monologue where he's talking about how he wants to exert his will over dorian and like yeah all right kind of influence the way that he sees the world so yeah definitely getting a vibe from that so okay dorian is this guy and he's good looking and basil is an artist friend who is really inspired by how good looking he is and he paints this painting and Henry comes over and he sees the painting and they're all there talking. And Henry puts the idea in Dorian's head that like youth is the only thing that's worth having or the only thing that's worth 
pursuing. Who says Henry says that? Henry says this to Dorian. Why does Henry say that? Because he's always spouting out off these weird ideas. What? What? <laughs> but this, this sounds like it's gonna like cause like a big shift in where we're going in the story. Is this like? Is he always just? Is he spouting random things, and this one just happens to land with Dorian? Is kind of like he has this, and. After having read The Importance of Being Earnest, like Henry says a lot of things that I think a character in earnest could say, like especially about like like, you know, like that work, this this book takes kind of a dim view of marriage and of Victorian society and and um upper class people. Now Henry's this dandy character, right? Yeah, yeah. So are we do you think as the reader that Oscar Wilde is not a fan of people like Henry in the real world? Is he like holding him up as satire? I mean, is he there to say dumb things that aren't true? It's not dumb things that aren't true. He's just like satirized. I don't know. The whole book kind of satirizes high society and um, elites and aristocrats and stuff like it. It says like that their highest their highest aim is to like do completely nothing basically. Okay, cool. Like, that's the that's the life that an ideal aristocrat. aristocrat an aristocrat. <laughs> yeah, the aristocrats. Anyway, Henry says to Dorian, "Youth is the only thing worth having," and this like lands with Dorian and really connects with him. And he and he looks at the painting and gets kind of morose about how like he is going to age and the painting is going to look like he does now forever and he gets kind of bummed about it and then he says this really it's it's like a freaky friday situation like he says this thing so he goes to a chinese you know, restaurant he, he wishes what adaptation have you ever freaky seen freaky friday, friday? Are you talking about which freaky friday the most recent one no i have not seen the most recent one i've seen the old you've freaky seen the friday. classic freaky friday yeah who's in that not i don't know you stop interrupting me. Oh, I'm having I'm having a good time. <laughs> With your Freaky Friday is a <laughs> picture so of he has Freaky this, Friday. He has this Freaky Friday moment where he says basically, "Oh, oh, that this picture could age instead of me, and I could be young forever, and it would be the one that got ugly and old." And whoever's listening, it might be God, it might be just fate. It doesn't. It's not. It's never really explained, which is kind of par for the course. For these books that like happens okay um it's not the first time it becomes clear is um dorian falls in love with this actress and he you know they get engaged to be married her name is uh sybil vane interesting um, yeah and he falls in love with her because she's so good at acting and she's such a great artist and then once like she once they kiss and once she falls in love with him she like starts acting really bad because she realizes or you know she thinks she realizes that acting is all just an imitation and it's all pretend and it's all it all pales in comparison to real love but it turns out that her acting ability was what dorian liked about her in the first place and so he says that he doesn't love her and he leaves and she kills herself oh my god that's like the worst o henry story i've ever heard of (laughs) here i got you the truth about acting here i got you some bad acting Go kill yourself. And, um, yeah. <laughs> so Dorian is like, he writes her the, you know, not knowing that she has died yet. He writes her this apology letter and he's going to apologize. No. And he notices that like, 
the portrait of him before it was just him like smiling and looking pretty and now it's like the same picture but he's kind of got this this can the sneer on his face what did you what word did you almost say i don't know i'm just he's got a sneer okay has he aged and at this point or has his face just gone all weird no his, his face is just face a little off on now. His, he's got a little bit of a sneer okay and you know instantly of course he puts it all together <laughs> of course the painting <laughs> The painting is atoning for his sins or whatever. It's like absorbing. That's the not bad the stuff wish that he, that he made, though. The painting is like it's getting ugly instead of him. The book does this weird thing where it equates like people doing bad stuff with their physical appearance. Like, like if you if you have inward evil, then you look. Of course, you look evil on the outside too. Oh, okay. It's Jekyll and Hyde. Okay. I guess kind of. It is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Continue, sorry. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, I mean, the the rest of the book, and there there are other things that we can talk about, but the rest of the book is like him descending into this this life of opulence, and like he's always trying trying new things, and like pretty much anybody who falls in with him, like falls into a life of crime or a life of. I don't know, opium smoking idleness. Oh God. <laughs> or like prostitution. Like basically everyone who he is friends with, like their lives get ruined basically because they are all like, they don't have any paintings to absorb the, the ill effects of all the vices that they're experimenting oh, with. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is he immortal? He it's it's doesn't even if he is and I'm not sure if he is it's it doesn't end up being important because like some some eighteen ish years after he you know after he does this Freaky Friday thing with the painting where they like switch vintages <laughs> good all right yeah that one <laughs> he um he decides that he wants to be I don't know like the painting is just up there in his attic it's locked away he can't stand to be that far away from it for very long he's always afraid someone's gonna go up there and figure it out what is he af- um, what but why why doesn't he want people to know well because one he's doing all this bad stuff that he's trying to hide from the rest of society two like 10 years or you know a few years after this happens basil comes by and he wants to see the painting oh no it's like i don't know he wants to exhibit it uh-oh because, I mean, he thought it was, like, his greatest work. And he, you know, Basil says this stuff about how he how he put so much of himself into the painting. And it was, like, one of his best Uh-oh. paintings ever. So he wants to see it. And so Dorian shows it to him. And Basil's like, oh, no, that thing that you said about wanting the pain to get old while you stayed young is true. Oh, no. <laughs> and then Dorian kills him. So what? he's got blood on what? his hands. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Oh no! And then the after he kills Basil, the the Dorian Gray in the picture gets blood on his hands. Oh like, literally, no. Oh, no! Symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So he's got all this guilt that's like slowly building up, but it and, doesn't like, show up veins. on his body like it shows up on. No, the no, he looks the same as he did at the beginning of the of the thing. Still super and, hot. Like, still smoking. Yeah. Right. Oh, super, super pretty, gorgeous. Super pretty uh, gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, looking then, for someone then, who's super pretty gorgeous. And, and Sybil Vane's brother shows up, and Uh-oh. he's like, "You wronged my sister, and I'm going to kill you." And 
and he gets killed accidentally in like a hunting accident. What? Um, and so eventually the guilt of all this stuff is like weighing on Dorian and he doesn't want the painting up there anymore. So he goes to slash the painting and he stabs it. And when he does that, like the painting reverts to, you know, it's, it's original. Oh no. He he turns old and he dies and his servants find him with like a knife through his heart. And they like see his clothes and his rings and they figure out that that it was him, even though he looks like a mummy man. Uh, yeah, and that's the end of the book. All right. Bum, bum, bum. So, yeah, the synopsis is short. The, the first thing I want to comment on that I really, I guess I didn't care for. Uh-oh. Was that I think that, I think this book would be better as, like, like at a Jekyll and Hyde length. Like, I don't know if we talked about it in the podcast for that show, but, like, it's not a super long book. Like things, things go through at a pretty steady clip. What, Jekyll and Hyde? Points. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, pretty yeah. short. It's not very long. And this book, um, it's 20 chapters. Um, it's a couple hundred-ish pages long. Like I read the Kindle version and it's always hard to say, you know, in page numbers how long a Kindle yeah, book is. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's like chapter 10. You're like, you're a good halfway into the book before you really start getting into the painting stuff. Like, like the magic like the painting, painting doesn't show up. Yeah, like the, the painting, it shows up really early. It's in like chapter two or chapter three that, you know, that this happens. And then there's a period in between where Henry is kind of putting these weird ideas in Dorian's head and he gets him up this book about, I don't know, about somebody who lives this like kind of hedonistic lifestyle and it puts a bunch of ideas in Dorian's head. There's there's this big in between period where it's just a lot of talking, a lot of I don't know, a lot of I I don't know I don't know that I want to say that it's filler, but it definitely lingers for longer than it needs to. Well, I was looking up the. Did you look up anything about the publication history of it? Um, I know that it was censored pretty heavily upon its original yes. release because people were like, "This is immoral and this is terrible." <laughs> and I think originally it was shorter. I think there was a 19, there was an 1890 version that was shorter than the 1891 version, and like Sybil's brother's character was in the second version, and they fleshed out Dorian's family history or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Probably warrants more research to figure out why you know, all the reasons why Wilde decided it needed to be longer. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we've read some books from this period. This is right around, this is like right at the end of the 1800s. Yep. And we've read other books kind of from this period. And sometimes it you get into situations where people are being paid by the word or where it was published like a chapter at a time in like a periodical or a newspaper or something and then converted into novel form later. And so all the padding and stuff that would not feel like a big deal if you're reading it over the course of like six months feels you feel it more in the published version yeah yeah um and it, it's it's just kind of it, it kind of throws you off because the chapters when stuff is happening are like very direct and very um you know they're very gripping like they move really quickly like when dorian first you know first realizes what's going on with, on with the painting it's very you know it moves very briskly when he you know and this the whole sequence where basil comes over and they talk and then basil ends up dead is very compelling and and you know it moves quickly and it and it's 
economical. But then there's this whole stretch in the middle of the book where Dorian is like, I don't know, it's describing kind of the vices that he's getting into, but is doing it very indirectly. It like it goes back through history and talks about like the the opulence of of these bygone eras and weird like all the the rubies and the music and all this crazy stuff that all these you know old societies thought was thought was really opulent and really excessive um so just cursory looking it up now seems it sounds like it was originally 13 chapters that then became 20 so that's a good like 60% of the book was the original book and then they yeah. hate you know added it by a third and then uh it might have been actually to that whole what you're kind of saying is that it was chronicling all these vices and stuff might help kind of moralize the book more like drive mm-hmm. the lesson home in a way that is a little more fleshed out and perhaps ponderous but still like less likely to be censored for homosexuality i don't know (laughs) right i don't know right what other thematic things you want to talk about with this book just i mean a lot of the things that henry says are kind of interesting and they're just but there's just so many of them it's hard to kind of nail down okay what wild actually thinks here let me let me dig my kindle version out and look at some of my highlights and stuff but well i'll fill time by letting our listenership know that uh well this was published in nineteen eighteen ninety uh for the first time and eighteen eighty five was when they passed the criminal law amendment act that was uh what was invoked when they gave Oscar Wilde two years of hard labor. Um so it's actually pretty tight in a timeline um from this like you know, sodomy had been illegal in Britain for a good long time. And then they were like, oh, this other stuff's illegal too. But we w- we can't kill you for it. But we will <laughs> put you in jail and put you to work. Um, and this is the same country that, you know, 50 or 60 years later uh, would th- almost lock up Alan Turing for homosexuality. And then he mm-hmm. opted for hormone therapy and then I think killed himself. Because, um, you know, that sounds great. <laughs> Yeah, so history is not kind to people who are, who don't conform to whatever well, the norm and, and, yeah. is in that particular period is the lesson here. Yeah, so yeah, just Henry says a lot of like he's always espousing these these ideas that people who people who practice self-denial and like self-restraint are just they're just boring and they're not worth hanging around with. Okay. Um like we talked about in the importance of being earnest, like Wilde has a lot to say about marriage and none of it is very good. Um, toward the end of the book, Henry says, of course, married life is merely, merely a habit, a bad habit, but then one regrets the loss of even one's worst habits. Wait, unpack that for me. Unpack the second half of that for me. Say that again. Like if you, if you have a bad habit, like you drink too much or you eat too much and then you stop doing it, even though you know, it's good for you to be you still miss it. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> I think that's drinking and marriage. You know, they're the same thing. I admit that I think it is better to be beautiful than to be good. But on the other hand, no one is more ready than I am to acknowledge that it is better to be good than to be ugly. <laughs> <laughs> like he has, he has just all these little 
asides and these little things that he's always spouting. And it's very the importance of being earnest ish, I think, because I I think that the the pithiness and like the glibness, I guess, of those lines. Doesn't sound like this novel's as funny though. No, I mean there there are funny bits, but it definitely overall is pretty bleak. Pretty bleak. <laughs> Nowadays, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing is another one. Like, I just have all these, like, totally out-of-context quotes that definitely do fit into these giant blocks of dialogue, but just by themselves are pretty pretty hilarious. Yeah. Um, So, does your, did your edition have, like, any preface stuff from Oscar Wilde or anything in it? Um, it did, and it's all about... (laughs) I mean, here's how I will read the first paragraph and also like the last bit of it. All right. Um, The first paragraph says the artist is the creator of beautiful things to reveal art and conceal. The artist is art's aim. The critic is he who can translate into another manner or a new material, his impression of beautiful things. All, all art is quite useless. He concludes like there's just this whole preface about what art is and like what the aim of art is that I think it was written in response to people who didn't like the original book. Is that right? I I think so. I would imagine. Yeah. That's an interesting argument because he's talking about aestheticism, which is the idea that art doesn't serve art. Art exists to be beautiful. Art exists Mm -hmm. to be art. Um, It's the whole arts for art's sake kind of thing. And the idea that art shouldn't include any socio-political themes. You just create a a thing and it's supposed to be enjoyed. Which I think you could argue importance of being earnest fits that perfectly. (laughs) Yeah. Like, there is no such thing as a moral or an an immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. (laughs) Well, see, I would think that is a, a direct response to hey, your book is grossly indecent. (laughs) Um, But I don't know if that means, like, that to me, it makes me wonder if Wilde actually believed that or believed that it's that fine line between him always having believed that or if, like, the defense of his book made him have to believe that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Because he could have been trying to say something and then is your book moral because it tells immoral or is it immoral because it shows things people don't like you like yeah right um that's interesting and then the it's 19th cent- the 19th century dislike of realism is the rage of caliban seeing his own face in a glass oh my god <laughs> oh my god yeah like there you go <laughs> so, so i just don't know if he's critiquing aestheticism or not with the book i don't think he is but what is he it's a book about beautiful piece of art that's too beautiful and then it's not beautiful anymore you know what i mean yeah it's like what is Mm. does he think his novel means something or is he being forced to say that it means well i mean he definitely makes you know he makes comments about about um society and about like aristocrats and about these uh man i wish i could find that quote Oh yeah, okay. Um, it's talking about I think this is about Henry. 
And um, yeah, Henry, I mean, like like some of the aristocratic characters in The Importance of Being Earnest, I think Henry exists in part to poke fun at these aristocrats who who don't who they're like rich and that's pretty much what they do like they don't yeah they don't go to work like they don't they're not supposed to mix with the lower classes and um it says that henry henry had set himself to the serious study of the great aristocratic art of doing absolutely nothing yeah yeah one percent so so it's yeah it's not like it's it's not like this book has nothing to say it's not like the book itself exists only to be nice prose, you know? Yes. But I think if the first time you publish a book, a bunch of people get really upset and censor you, maybe you come back around <laughs> <laughs> and and try to try to dull that down a little bit. Um, I know another thing, I think it's... I, another quote I read, I think it's in that preface, I'm not sure, is... Uh, Every this is attributed to Oscar Wilde. I've seen it before. In every first novel, the hero is the author as Christ or Faust. Do you think that is pertinent to this book? I don't think that's in this preface, by the way. No, it's attributed. Here, can you to give him. me that? Can you give that to me again? Yeah. In every first novel, the hero is the author as Christ or Faust. Hmm. Um, and I think the Faust comparison to this book is pretty dead on. Yeah. Like. Um, especially especially in that expanded middle section where he's like going through a bunch of different vices and either, you know, observing how other people are punished for them and not observing them in himself or whatever. Yeah. So do you, I mean, does that, and this is another thing I think we talked about in an earlier episode when we talked about that writing class that I took, but is it basically saying that um, in in a first novel, the main character is invariably kind of some element of the author, like there's some autobiographical um, some autobiographical bent to this stuff that where either you know even even if the author is like an idealized version so christ or like a a demonized version yeah, or so like a some sort of i i would i could see it i think there's a lot of ways to take this quote but i think yeah the autobiograph the autobiographical nature is definitely there um mm-hmm. cuz what else are you going to write about and then it's two versions of temptation i guess it's martyrdom because you resist temptation or it is you know giving into temptation over and over again and then being punished for it Um, right because that's what you know faust is the temptation of ultimate knowledge or whatever that might you know um which has become kind of like a whole scientific allegory even though it wasn't quite like he was the the faust from the play is like practicing black magic and stuff like that's not <laughs> it's i mean he still has to go read books about it so there's some anti-intellectualism going on but um i can see those being two sides of one coin mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of interesting because it's not it's not quite a jekyll and hyde thing because i think dorian remains cognizant of the fact that he's doing bad stuff sometimes he's more aware of it than others like um, right after he 
finds out that Sybil Vane has killed herself. He he wants to like he acknowledges that he should stop seeing Henry and he should tell Basil because he knows that Basil will like help him out. Mm-hmm. And he knows that he's like like he he's the guy who will do like the moral thing in the situation. Um yes, I'm not yeah. which which doesn't pan out. And then um and then later on I mean when he kills Basil like briefly like right before it happens, he's you know, he breaks down crying and he knows like he kind of acknowledges the enormity of the bad stuff that he's done. And rather than like Basil is entreating him to like get down on his knees and, and ask forgiveness because, you know, you did this with your words and maybe you can undo this, this, you know, this, whatever it is that you have done with your words. (laughs) And then right. And then right at the end, like he, he resolves to be good and he, like he meets this girl and he, he is in love with her, but rather than like let his influence corrupt her, he, you know, breaks up with her and leaves her. And he sees this as being, as being good and like being, you know, denying himself something. And he goes to check the painting to see if maybe the effects have started to reverse. Oh, interesting. And he just, he just looks worse because that, you know, trying to deny himself something and trying to be good was just like another, emotional experience in the list of emotional experiences and he was doing it he was not doing it for the right reasons he was doing it so he could feel like he was good not so he could actually like genuinely be good does that you're make making sense? me want to go rewatch breaking bad <laughs> <laughs> this whole <laughs> this whole issue everything of, is breaking everything bad. is breaking bad everything is jekyll and hyde everything is frankenstein that's basically what we're learning not frankenstein well in this case but we keep cycling back to a couple of central stories. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, what you were saying is that it's not exactly Jekyll and Hyde because, you know, he's not switching back and forth between two personalities, but he does. Yeah. It's, it's not about the duality of, of man, but about like the corrupting influence of evil on one's soul, which I think is, that is in Jekyll and Hyde, especially when you get to the part where Jekyll can no longer stay Jekyll yeah just because the the evil is wearing down on what's good in him yeah I think it's there is some duality there but it's it's duality within the same person and like where can you put the other part of you well you put it in that portrait that you lock up and then that becomes <laughs> you know you can't stop it and then it comes back at you all at once yeah I'm sure there are some metaphors for psychiatric treatment in this as well <laughs> about repressing things or whatever it might be. Yeah, right. Did you enjoy it, Andrew? What do you do? You, like, I did like it. I mean, like it's it's a little dense. Yeah, like I said, and and more so than in earnest. I think just because there was so much more of it to read, the kind of ornateness of the phrasing and the language is a little more wearing. Yes, because it's I also guess, not it's not dialogue. Sense. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't, I read a big chunk of it like this weekend. Like I've read, I probably read like two thirds of it in the space of a couple of days. So like it is, it's, it's just a lot all at once. Yeah. 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 Um, I did, I mean, I did like it and I thought that it was, especially the second half. Like if, if I were to make an abridged, like truncated version of it. There's a whole bunch of the middle that you could cut out and I think come away with. So you want to read the first what version is, of this book? 
Yeah, maybe. Like, I think there's there's a version that's that gets to the essence of what he's saying more quickly and more effectively. But yeah, because I mean, a lot of I think we've encountered this a lot with these stories from the 19th century, specifically these kind of like Twilight Zone esque short stories that just happen to be short novels. Like, it's yeah, a really right. strong conceit with a pretty powerful theme if you want to th- sit and think about it but it has also then been stretched out <laughs> like wasn't turn of the screw like this for you like it was oh man it had stuff to say but it was just buried in kind of the ornateness of the yeah of the i did prose. not enjoy that prose at all um but i really i think liked you'd probably the ghost yeah, story. you'd probably you'd probably like while a little bit better just because you can tell it's the same it's the same guy writing it and he still has a way around a phrase and a way of like cleverly turning a phrase that is appealing. And I think if you if you read it in like two or three chapter chunks at a time over the course of a couple of weeks, you would probably come away with like a better feeling about it. Yeah. Maybe I, I, than I, I enjoy dense prose that has a little more self like not self aware wit, but if you're going to be dense with your prose, I'd rather you have some wit in there because you're like, if you're turning a phrase, you want to take some time. That's okay. But like, yeah. like most of those, most of those quotes from Lord Henry I read were embedded in big chunks of quotes. Yeah, like yeah. you, you, you read through a whole thing and then he gets to the end and he kind of sums it up in a pithy little, <laughs> little sentence there at the end. All right. Well, I think we've reached the end of this episode. Would you That's agree? That's logical conclusion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so thank you for folks at home for listening. Thanks, Andrew, for chatting and doing some reading. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thanks for bearing with us as we as we continue to have scheduled slippage and scheduling difficulties. Like, I, I think it's a couple different things. I mean, one of it is just that um, it's been, I think it's been busy for both of us at work lately. Yeah. Like, Craig has started a new job recently, yep. and, and my job is just always, like, it consumes exactly as much of my time as I let it yep. consume. <laughs> and lately that's been a lot. I think, you know, also we've gotten to the point where we're having to hunt a little bit more for books yes. because I think we've gotten through our backlog at this point and are now just kind of looking for good reads. So if you have any recommendations and I know we've gotten some, we should go back and, and look through them and, and maybe start reading some of the listener recommended yeah, books. If but you, if you have stuff that you think we should read and you think would make for a good discussion, definitely let us know. Um, we have an email account at overduepod at gmail.com. And we are also on Twitter and Facebook at uh, twitter.com or facebook.com slash overduepod. You can also head to overduepodcast.com where you can find back episodes. Uh, maybe you found this episode there. You can also take a look at the Amazon links on our page to pick up a copy of one of the books that we've read. It's a way to support us, pay for some hosting costs, and defray other costs as well. Uh, You can also go to our iTunes page where you can subscribe or leave a a review or a rating if you feel so inclined. We would appreciate that. You can also use the RSS link on our website to subscribe with non-iTunes devices. Yes, I heard them called podcatchers, and I think that's a really... I'm on the fence about that term. Stupid term? No, like, your I favorite podcatcher? I don't... Yeah. I don't like it that much. But it's accurate. 
uh, and it's kind of a play on words, and I do like plays on words. But well, podcast I don't know, itself man. is like some sort of weird. Uh, I just forgot the word for smushing two words together. <laughs> portmanteau. Yeah, it's a portmanteau. What's it a portmanteau of? Of iPods and broadcast, I think. Okay, I guess something like that. <laughs> um, once someone, once I read it out loud, is like a portmanteau based off the word broadcast. I got it, but it's still stretching it. Yeah, just a little bit. It's not as bad as podcatcher, but. Ugh. Which is like it's like a portmanteau of a portmanteau. It is, yes. Like you wouldn't call a radio like a broadcatcher. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I might call the cops on a broadcatcher. I don't. Know. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back next week. Craig, do you know what you're reading? I'm reading a visit from the Goon Squad. I think that's the name of it. Is that the name of All it? Right. I think probably it's a Pulitzer Prize winner from like two years ago. <laughs> a visit from the, anyway, yeah, a visit from the Goon Squad. I'm reading it. Okay. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Until then, everybody, try to be happy. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>